Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Swim podcast. How's it going, friends? Welcome to episode 13 of Swim Podcast. Again, the someone who isn't me on this one is Alan Moore. This is actually part two of a two-hour conversation that we had when I went up to Northampton to the Lodge Studios, big up Jay and Mark, Um, and we sat there for two hours and just talked about magic and creativity, and in this second hour, we carry on that conversation, but we also take in things like HP Lovecraft and Alan's forthcoming novel, Jerusalem. It's an epic listen. If you haven't checked out part one, you should maybe do that first, which is episode 12. But, uh, you you know, just jump in whenever and try and uh, digest everything because it's it's an amazing one. He's an incredible man, and listening to him speak was a beautiful thing. And sitting and having a conversation with him about magic and these other things, which I'm really passionate about, was... um, was quite a blessing. So at some recent festivals and also online, people have been asking me a little bit about the mechanics of the actual podcast, stuff like how I'm choosing who the the guests are going to be. And, and, you know, when I first started this in at the start of 2016 in January, when I finally pulled my finger out and decided I needed to get round to doing this as I'd been sort of talking about it for 18 months but hadn't actually put it into action... I just made a list of people that I really wanted to speak to that I found super interesting, people whose music I love, people whose uh, writing I really love. And I've just kind of worked my way through it and I've been ticking them off. So I've been really lucky on that front. You know, I mean, you look at the list of episodes and I think it's pretty decent. The list is obviously a very long one and I'm I'm just working my way through it steadily. So upcoming guests, I'm hoping to get... Uh, Laura Jane Grace, that's happening at the end of this year. Also Marilyn Manson. I've done a bunch of interviews with him and also with uh, Geordie or or Twiggy. But that was very specifically about uh, the anniversary of Antichrist Superstar, which I'll probably do as a podcast at some point. But I want to get out to L.A. because there's there's a few people lined up that I really want to speak to. I want to speak to Kat Von D. I want to speak to Tom DeLong about his To The Stars project, which he's been working on, which is fascinating, I think. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a long list of people and I'm just kind of working my way through it. There's also people like Ozzy and Tony Iommi and Jimmy Page, which seem slightly unobtainable at this point. But, you know, I've interviewed them all before for my radio show, so I'm kind of hoping we can make it happen that they do a podcast as well because I think it'd be great to have some of those people on swim. As far as the mechanics go of recording it, I just 
it's all very compact actually i just i've got like an olympus ls100 multi-track recorder which is the size of like an iphone 6 plus stuck on top of another one the thing has a couple of xlr inputs it has phantom power i can record everything cleanly i just use a couple of separate road mics and then once i've recorded it it's super easy with that olympus it's, you just plug it into my laptop take the audio off of it and then uh, i edit it in pro tools but as far as the editing actually goes it's more a case of just taking out all the bits where there are huge pauses where i'm thinking about what i want to say next or me going, uh, and that's pretty much it. Apart from adjusting audio levels, it's pretty easy. Also, I've been asked a couple of times about what the music is at the start of every episode. And that was like, a, it's actually a piece of music called Atropos, which I wrote a while ago and demoed it at home. And um, it was actually for an art exhibition that I did a while ago with um, Serge Tanky and, and a bunch of other people where you had to create separate paintings and then a piece of music to go with those. And then uh, when people walked around the gallery, they had headphones on and, and there was like a QR reader or whatever. And when they pointed their phone, at it, it played the corresponding piece of music to the, each piece of art. So the, the music at the start is just the piece of music that I wrote for that. And it may even make an appearance on my band's next album in some form or another i don't know as an interlude who knows as far as the paintings go i've been trying to post these sort of progress videos on instagram um, which is at daniel p carter which shows me kind of working on the paintings because there's been a couple of times as well where people have been uh, have seen my artwork and go oh right so what what are you doing are you like painting over um xeroxes and photocopies and i was like no they're they're oil paintings um, with a bit of acrylic and ink and whatnot. Yeah, and it it would kind of bum me out a little bit. That you know, I don't want all this recognition necessarily, but I just want people to know that these are paintings that I've worked on, rather than just like photocopying or printing out something from the internet and just making a painting over the top of it. That's not what's happening. There's actually going to be a book uh, that I'm doing with a company called Von Zoss in the near future which is going to be like a, a book of my sketches. And I think I'm going to use uh, a few of these Swim podcast cover portraits because um, I guess because they're my most recent work, but also there's a lot going on with them because oftentimes what I'll do is I'll write notes underneath and draw sigils and, and, and have little images that reference the person that I'm interviewing. And then I, then I draw and then paint their, their portrait over the top of those. And some of that sometimes bleeds through a bit, which... I think is a good analogy for what, what the podcast is itself. Anyway, I hope that clears up a few things. If you want to get in touch, hit me up at Daniel P. Carter on Twitter and Instagram and also subscribe on iTunes. Leave us a nice review and a, a star rating. That would be brilliant. Anyway, enough of that. This is part two with Alan Moore. I, I find it interesting as well that... Um, sorry, I, I was just thinking of some of your most famous comic work was born during a period where where things were really bleak yeah and oppressive and I, and I think you know everyone always says great art comes out of great suffering and and or a reaction to it and it just feels like um it started making me, I was thinking about this earlier and I, I remember being in school in in like sitting in a, in a chemistry class and being shown a video about what's going to happen when <laughs> when nuclear war comes mm -hmm. and it was it was like the conditioning at that point was looking back on it now it's it's mind-blowing well i couldn't remember during the 1980s um 
when the Cold War was definitely at its hottest. Yeah. Uh, I remember the um, the jets taking off to bomb Libya. The the roar of those bomber engines in the night sky. Mm. You could hear them all over the country. Um, yes, the and that was of course when uh, when the wind blows. The book and the film yeah. were emerging. Uh, that was in the air then. Um, the doubt that we would survive another decade, and I remember that at that time I'd, we'd got uh, two small children, our daughters, and I had heard that the thing that was most frightening children was that their parents were too scared to even talk about the the nuclear dilemma. Hmm. And that frightened children more than anything. So I tried to talk frankly um, and openly to my kids about what the situation was. Yeah. Um, and, and, and at the same time, I was far from resolved in it myself. At that time, I was thinking, well, you know, like, if a nuclear war happened, what would that mean? And I thought, what that would mean is that, assuming that it, it wiped out most of the life on the planet uh, or made and made conditions intolerable for the rest of it, probably, mm. I said, what that would mean is that every human struggle, every childbirth, every non-human struggle, for that matter, all of it, all the art, all of the, yeah, the pain of childbirth, the difficulty and struggle of raising children, all of that, all the wars, everything would have all been for nothing. Mm. And nobody would ever know that we'd ever existed. Um, that was quite depressing. But I thought, well, we, we, might, we might get through that. We might get through the, uh, the nuclear war thing. You know, we, we've got through things in the past. We might get through that. But then there is the environmental thing, isn't there? You know, um, we could easily just completely wipe out um, you know biological life upon this planet and then we're back to the same position nobody would have ever known that we were here but we might get through that but then I mean like looking at it even the sun what is it in another 5 billion years it kind of expands will gobble up all of the inner planets probably including earth but people like Eric Drexler uh, one of the godfathers of nanotechnology, he suggested solutions for that, that we could perhaps either prune the sun, uh, solar husbandry, by having a, a ring of uh, reactors, a ring of cyclotrons completely surrounding the sun, which would squeeze it in the middle so that blobs oh flew off at the end, which we could capture and then use as an energy source for the rest of time. Um, but there again that might not happen uh, but if it did if it did or if we managed to move to another planet that was outside of our expanding sun hmm. um even so after a, a few more billion years i mean like the the universe itself is going to inevitably die and nobody would ever know that we were even here so this was pretty big stuff and it remained unresolved until i finally came up with the working thesis for Jerusalem um, which I've since learned is 
referred to as eternalism, but which I believe has a profound scientific basis. Um, this is the idea that uh, all physicists since Einstein have agreed that we are in a universe of at least four spatial dimensions. And they are spatial dimensions because that's what a dimension is. Mm. It's a measurement of space according to a particular plane. Um, so we've got a universe of at least four spatial dimensions, one of which is not time, but rather our perception of time is the way that we perceive the fourth spatial dimension. Okay. So, according to Einstein, we are existing in what is called a block universe. This is a huge hyperdimensional solid in which everything is unchanging and eternal, and which uh, the, the illusion of change and the illusion of movement only comes about as our consciousness moves through the solid along what we might call the time axis, um, in which the effect is something like running a projector beam over a strip of film. Uh, now, on the strip of film, all of those individual cells, they are unmoving, they are unchanging, they are fixed in position forever, or at least until the film combusts or whatever. Um, but when the beam of the projector plays over them, then there is the illusion of movement and change and narrative and Charlie Chaplin beating the bully and getting the girl and doing his funny walk. And there is the illusion of a life. Um, I suspect that that could be our situation. And, of course, when we get to the end of that life, uh, our consciousness, as far as I can see, has nowhere to go in this unchanging solid other than back to the beginning yeah which would lead to an infinite recurrence and every time would still feel like the first time yeah um and that although yeah people have received that idea with mixed reactions um my daughter leah said yeah i think i could live with that um Ian Banks, uh, although it was a, a particularly rough time in his life, he said, Jesus Christ, that's the most horrible thing I've ever heard. Um, and, yeah, I can see that, because what you're talking about, the the best moments of your life forever, I mean, that's paradise. Yeah. The worst moments of your life forever, that is hell. Both here and now, both happening at the same time, both almost inseparable from each other. Um, yeah, one of the things it does, though, is it removes that thing of, and then nobody would know we were ever here. It doesn't matter. We've not gone anywhere. Mm. Um, and in fact, about halfway through Jerusalem, I found this beautiful quote from Einstein. It's actually a little more beautiful than what he actually said. People have tidied it up a bit. But in the tidied up version, uh, Einstein was talking to the widow. He was consoling the widow of a fellow physicist. This was only a few months before Einstein himself died. 
but uh, consoling the widow of this fellow physicist, he said, look, for people like myself and your husband, um, death is not really a major problem because we understand the persistent illusion of transience, which is a beautiful phrase. Mm. Uh, It's five words long. And if I'd heard that before I started Jerusalem, I probably could have saved myself some <laughs> 600,000 plus words, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that is, that solves all of that stuff. Yeah. It means that, yeah, nothing, that time is not vanishing, that, that you know, the fact that they don't make spangles anymore, the fact that uh, all of the good television shows seem to have disappeared, the fact that they've pulled down your favourite buildings, that's okay, because they're all still intact, just down the road, hmm. back there down the road. Like the houses that you drive by in a car, they're not demolished the moment that you go past them. If you backed up, they'd still be there. And I think that that is the nature of time. Yeah. So that was one of the things that enabled me to resolve a lot of those feelings. That's not to say that I wouldn't be terribly upset if there was a nuclear war tomorrow, but I wouldn't be quite as despairing as I would have been otherwise. Yeah. You know. It feels like that um, that oppressive fear is 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 becoming really prevalent again, though. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, in the, it's for want of a better word, the psychic sphere, that we are under oppressively heavy weather at the moment. Yeah. You know, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, I, I was going to say it feels like the same thing, but dressed up in another, in another manner. But, um, and this is perhaps just me trying to make the best of a nightmarish situation, but... Uh, as you were remarking earlier, I don't believe necessarily that all art comes from suffering. Hmm. Because, um, but perhaps a true artist should have an understanding of suffering, hmm. even if they have not necessarily suffered themselves. I mean, like Goya is uh, Horrors of the Civil War. If he had actually been one of those dismembered bodies stuck on a tree branch, then he wouldn't have done the pictures. Yeah. Um, it's not important that he suffered, but that he saw was or witnessed or yeah. was able to conceive the suffering um, and to pass it on to us. Yeah. It's, uh, I think that there's, you know, that that is... Um, I'm sorry, I've lost my thread completely. What was I, what were we just saying about um, that? That um, great art can come out of suffering, but that you don't actually have to. Yeah, it's sort of that that you suffer can, yourself. And and yeah, all oh, right, okay, I'm back on track. It's sorry when I, when I go to a sub clause of a sentence, and uh, yeah, I, I, I tend to forget where I originally started. Yeah, but um, basically, it is true that times of turbulence do produce wonderful art as a reaction. Hmm. Um, I mean, like, the Renaissance itself was sparked by the fall of Constantinople 
um, incredible turbulence and warfare, but that released all of these ideas to a Western world that had never seen them before, or hadn't seen them for centuries. Yeah. Um, I remember the uh, the late seventies and the early eighties. Uh, yes, Margaret Thatcher was a terrible, terrible thing to happen to a country. On the other hand, it did give an incredible focus to punk, to um, the the alternative comedy scene, to alternative thinking in general. Yeah, these things have counter reactions. Yeah, it's like um, in Jerusalem, I describe reality as all being decided by uh, a bunch of snooker playing archangels. Uh, at this enormous snooker table, it's all about um, rebounds and volleys and repercussions. And um, I, I tend to think that I mean it's it's like when I was doing From Hell, the uh, book about the the Whitechapel Jack the Ripper murders. Yeah. I mean, in that, uh, I believe it was George Bernard Shaw who said, "All of us social reformers." have been slaving for years to try and get people to improve conditions for the poor and now some anonymous genius has beaten us to it now I think that that may have been imparting motives to Jack the Ripper which he probably uh, whoever he was was probably not feeling Hmm. Um, but it is true that um, the horrific death of those five women um, that brought attention to the East End uh, and a realisation of the conditions in which all of the people in the East End were living uh, and that brought improvements to that brought improvements to the area yeah. um, it brought a different way of looking at the poor so these things sometimes terrible things happen that as repercussions have what good things happening and the other way around yeah but do you think they're necessities well in my view of the universe um when i was just talking about this block universe unchanging um throughout eternity the one thing that that would preclude would be free will um it would suggest that everything our every action our every word the the movement of every molecule is determined i mean this is it's known as a block universe as a solid hmm. um yeah like i say that would preclude free will uh which would mean some quite big changes for all of us i mean <laughs> um science uh, I suppose science could still function, although I would think that uh, you'd have to change your notions of cause and effect. Yeah, but then we're just like Scalectric's cars stuck on a track just going round and round. Yeah, and the yeah that would be the, the case, wouldn't it? Yeah. Or we're like uh, characters in a film or in a novel yeah. uh, that have our appointed roles, that um, all the world's a stage and all the men and women merely players. Yeah. Uh, at which point... I mean, I would say, I mean, yeah, so you'd lose cause and effect uh, in how does one thing cause another 
if it's all going to happen anyway. Hmm. Um, you'd also, for most of the world's religions, they'd have a problem because you also <laughs> lose sin and virtue. Yeah. Um, which really goes against the grain uh, for all of us. Um, are we so, because, you know, we like hating Hitler. We like hating Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. Um, however, if they were merely acting out their part in a predetermined universe, then ultimately you would have to say that they were not at fault. I mean, I've investigated this in Jerusalem and I've come to the conclusion that, uh, yeah, so um, the bad are not truly sinful and the good are not truly virtuous except to us yeah because then it just becomes like a giant cosmic version of i was just following orders yes exactly so but except to us Hmm. we are the only people perceiving morality yeah so we are free to attribute that morality how we will uh it may not ultimately on a cosmic level be of any meaning yeah Uh, but then who said it was anyway uh so we are still left with feelings of sin and virtue and guilt and in fact the only way that we can overcome that uh the idea that you mentioned of being on our scale extra track uh the only way we can overcome that and not go mad is because we don't really believe that we don't have free will Mm. Um, and how could you tell the difference it's um, we will continue to as long as we have the illusion of free will we're all right as long as nobody writes a say 1300 page book explaining that that is all an illusion yeah then we should be okay but then it brings into question all the uh the current theories that are coming through now in um where they're saying the universe is the whole universe is a hologram and yes uh that was one that i I had particular fun with that one it was uh well yeah uh there was two actually there was the that was the one that was based upon um somewhere in i think frankfurt they were doing some experiments and uh, they were getting unusual noise that they were picking up. Yeah. And uh, someone had written to them saying, um, I think, does your noise that you're picking up in your results, is it roughly within these parameters? And they said, yeah, it's exactly in those parameters. And he said, I think I know what it might be, but I'm going to have to come over and have a look. And this person put forward the idea that what the noise was was um, the the universal constant, uh, which I believe is the smallest grain of the universe hmm. uh, that can possibly exist. It's sort of the the infinitely tiny grain of the universe, the universal constant. This scientist was saying, yeah, but it shouldn't be detectable. This is the same mathematically. This is the universal constant, but it is so big that we're able to detect it. That could only be happening if it was being projected from a point outside 
uh, the boundaries of the current universe and that this would work if um, that basically a hologram is a flat surface that causes a three-dimensional image to appear. He was saying that the outside skin of the universe, if you like, which could be regarded as a two-dimensional surface, the limits of the universe, yeah. that could be regarded as a two-dimensional surface. What if um, the entirety of the universe is in fact a hologram? Um, yeah, this is this is possible. This is the thing about our present day is that we have all of these beautiful bonkers ideas hmm. that we can entertain. Um, there was also the people who said that, look, within the next 20 years, we're definitely going to invent a quantum supercomputer that will be able to handle more information, more bits of information than there are particles in the known universe. Yeah. At that point, we will be able to simulate uh, an entire universe full of simulated life forms that do not know that they are simulated. Uh, and he pointed out that if we're going to be able to do that, the odds that this is the first time that this has happened are vanishingly small. Yeah. It is much more likely that we are within... A, we are a simulation within a simulation within a simulation within a simulation and so on. Like a fractal. An infinitely nested series of simulated universes. And he said, so what should you do? Um, given this, how can the average human being uh, put this to his advantage? And he was saying, well... Firstly, you should always try, um, you should remember that it's the boring characters who get killed off first. Uh, so try to be interesting, um, that this is probably a good, a good ploy. Also, um, whoever is in the next simulated universe up is playing this game, this simulation that we're in, is to us effectively god yeah they are also probably given that they are probably have a similar ego structure to ourselves they are probably playing in the game as some sort of avatar now they probably wouldn't go for an obvious avatar such as say the president of the united states but would probably still go for a celebrity of some sort and um josie long when she was doing her arts emo emergency guerrilla performances up and down the country in drafty car parks. Uh, she was doing one in Milton Keynes, and um, she asked me if I wanted to go over and uh, talk to the people. It was an area behind a church. She contacted the audience by Twitter, yeah. completely free. It was just saying, look, we can just put on actually quite entertaining performances wherever we want. So um, she'd got some musicians and comedians. It was great. And then I went along and explained um, that sort of uh, about what I've just told you, about uh, how God is... I mean, this, this man was essentially saying that we should suck up to minor celebrities because they might be God, basically. So I was explaining that to the the frozen and huddled people of Milton Keynes. And uh, I was saying that that really wasn't enough, 
because, I mean, a lot of celebrities are terribly unpleasant. And that I thought that if they were trying to decide which minor celebrity was God, they should probably go for one who, who sounded and perhaps looked a bit like their image of what God might look like. And I said, but that in itself was not enough, uh, really, because that could lead you to genuflecting before any tramp, basically. You know, so you need other criteria. And I said to the people of Milton Keynes that they should ask themselves whether this figure before them actually physically constructed the world around them. And then I revealed to the people of Milton Keynes that actually I had physically constructed the uh, the world of Milton Keynes when I was working for a subcontractor to the gas board uh, in the mid-70s when they were building Milton Keynes. So yes, I did physically create their universe. And this is why, to this day, uh, I am worshipped as, as a deity by the primitive and superstitious people <laughs> of Milton Keynes. <laughs> you know what is funny, though, to say that is that... Um that makes me think of when when you wrote V for Vendetta. That's playing out now, isn't it? You have the Occupy movement, you have Anonymous, you have people donning mm. Guy Fawkes masks, and it's, it's, it's brought it into a reality. Well, yeah. Um, How mean, do you like, feel about that? Well, personally, I have I've disowned all of my early comics work. I don't have a copy of V for Vendetta in the house. That's um, really good. And the same with, uh, oh, I've heard that it, it's got its points, but no, it's just that all of these books, Beeper Vendetta, Watchmen, yeah. all of the stuff that I don't own, it largely represents to me um, broken friendships, yeah. um, copyright theft, uh, all sorts of things that aren't very pleasant, yeah. um, which if I were to spend my life thinking about them, I'd probably be quite angry most of the time and I, <laughs> I choose not to do that so okay. don't have copies of them in the house but with the phenomenon that you're you're talking about um yeah the the it was a bit strange with the vendetta that um i mean like i was writing that in 1982 and was trying to project this unbelievable future date of 1997 <laughs> which was clearly never going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, right, how do I conjure up a fascist dystopia? And I thought, well, one way would be to put security cameras on every corner. That looks pretty fascist. And then, of course, in 1997, uh, Tony Blair got in and immediately started blanketing the country with security cameras. Whether he had been a fan of Luther Vendetta in his early days, I don't know. I hope not. Uh, it's always possible and then I mean that felt a bit strange because you think alright it's probably just a coincidence but on the other hand it does feel a bit as if an idea that I had in a ridiculous science fiction context has somehow leaked out into the real world this is obviously a delusion but it's still a strange feeling hmm. um then when the anonymous movement first started and I first experienced them I've recently read a very very good book which is called I think Hackers, Hoaxers, Whistleblowers and Spies by Gabriella Coleman 
okay. um, which is about the the evolution of anonymous and lolsec and antisec and all of those groups. Um, it's my first memory is of them people in Beefa Vendetta masks barracking the Scientologists in Tottenham Court Road. I'm not sure how long ago because past time tends to sort of telescope for me and I'm I'm no yeah. longer certain of which decade things happened in. Mm. But I thought, mm, well, that's interesting. I'm glad that somebody has found a use <laughs> uh, for that mask. I'm glad that if it's a modern protest movement, I'm glad that that face is is useful to them. That image, you and know? appropriate for, lo- for for Scientology as well. Well, against... I mean, this uh, apparently the I think that the whole of the anonymous movement um, kind of came together around uh, its um, attacks on Scientology. I didn't know that. Apparently so. Um, it's uh, uh, yeah, I mean, originally it was anti-Scientology, but the kind of the working methods that they evolved, I think that they very quickly realised that actually you could apply that to almost any target. Hmm. Um, and when they'd uh, achieved some sort of victory to some degree over Scientology, in that Scientology now is unable to silence and sue people in the way that it used to um it's probably on the ropes to a certain degree uh the they then went on to play a massive part in um you know very uh, in uh giving all that information to wikileaks uh they were the originally the source of it yeah um they also played a part that I hadn't realised in the Arab Spring that um, apparently two or three days before all of that kicked off in Tunisia uh, Anonymous had been working they'd been running uh, Op Tunisia which was um, basically releasing data hacking government files in Tunisia releasing the data fomenting the revolution apparently two or three days before it all broke out, there were school children um, in a playground in Tunisia, uh, all lining up wearing V for Vendetta masks. Um, and then after Tunisia had kicked off, they moved on to Op Egypt. Yeah. Uh, and so on. Um, so, yeah, it is something. And there is the sense that. This has somehow, this idea has somehow escaped from my mind into reality. And I do believe that the boundary between fiction and reality is a porous one. Yeah. I think that this is how magic works or seems to work. That sort of, and I think it's indeed how the world works. Hmm. How everything around us, all the technologies, the money in our pockets, everything. Um, has been invented in a human mind that we are actually living in the interior of our own minds yeah all the artifacts everything the language that we're speaking in everything has come from a human mind through this semi-permeable membrane um and i was at a 
Now, having read Gabriella Coleman's book, I realised that yeah, most of a large number of those protesters have never read V for Vendetta. They mostly saw the film. Uh, which I suppose, but if that was what got the idea across, although I am rather sick of being quoted with bits of lame dialogue from that film um, being attributed to me, you know, like uh, people should. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Not fear their government. Government should, not, should fear their people. I never said that. That was one of the people who wrote the film. Um, but so I, I don't. And also, I'm not out there doing any of this stuff, so I definitely don't want to take credit hmm. for any of this. This is purely down to the, the individuals themselves. They deserve all the credit. Of course, but to create a symbol that, that becomes a rallying point. Well, I had... Um, I attended um, an, a, a talk somewhere in London. This was some years ago. Uh it was to a, a kind of a, an occult sort of... It was uh, the moot with no name. That would be the one. Atlantis Bookshop. Yes. Upstairs in the pub. Yes, were you there? I was. Yeah. I spoke to somebody afterwards. Yeah. I didn't speak to you afterwards, did I? No. No. I spoke to somebody <laughs> afterwards who was uh, who was saying that... Uh, they were saying that the existence of Anonymous... And how this was rippling across the world, um, they were saying that this meant that I was the greatest magus of all time, <laughs> that I was better than John D, and that, and I was saying, no, no, that's it's these people who deserve the credit. It's not all down to me. Uh, I'm very happy if I've provided an idea or an image. And what I was thinking was, yeah even in the remote possibility that what you're saying is true why would I want anybody to know that yeah you know um, yeah. I in those moments I am reminded of a, a story by the American science fiction writer Algis Budris he wrote a story called a short story called Nobody Bothers Gus um, where he's got uh, somebody who's noticed that a particular baseball player is hitting them out of the park every time, is doing superhuman things out there on the baseball field, and nobody's really talking about it. 
uh, nobody seems to notice. Hmm. And he gets a chance to talk to this person, and the the guy is, is saying, um, well, you know, I suppose I can tell you because uh, you'll forget it immediately anyway. Um, he, he says, yeah, I can just, I can do this stuff. And, and there, there's other autograph hunters around, and one of them has got um, a, gives him a pen and a piece of paper, and uh, the the player picks up the pen, ignores the paper, picks up the pen, and with his fingernail, he signs his name a millimetre under the surface of the pen, and gives it back to the autograph hunter, who just says, oh, neat, and goes off with it. And the the protagonist of the story is just gaping at this, and he explains, look, I don't want a lot of fuss. Uh, so um, people just forget that I've done this this marvellous thing because I like a quiet life. And, um, yeah, I could sympathise with that. Uh, and I am definitely not saying that I have created <laughs> the anonymous movement through yeah. supernatural powers. Of course. I'm just saying that even if I had, why would I want to broadcast that? Yeah. You know? Plus it throws up everything into... Well, it goes back round to the idea of, of, of art as magic and magic as art then, but also um, everything else then becomes horrific when you think about it. I was... Uh, Obviously, I'm I'm going through Providence at the moment, mm-hmm. and um, and uh, it's made me go back and read Lovecraft again, which I hadn't done because I remember I I got into to his work when I was really young, just through and it, in really silly ways as well. Like I, I found out about him through liking Metallica because they had a couple of songs, mm-hmm. they had The Call of Cthulhu, and they had um, The Thing That Should Not Be. Um, and also through the role-playing game. Yeah. And and from that, you know, then started reading his work. Um, and uh, so reading, um, I'll be honest, I only read The Courtyard and Neonomicon fairly recently, actually, after after the fact yeah. of, of getting into Providence. But, um, yeah, as soon as you start to look at his thing it then started making me then look into other things like you know as you were saying about Kenneth Grant mm-hmm. um, saying that you know the idea that that there was some kind of link between Lovecraft and, that Lovecraft and Crowley Lovecraft was intuiting something yeah which is which is essentially going back to what we said initially about how how art is created like where does art come from where does writing mm-hmm. come from I mean like I would say that uh, yeah, it's it's a valid idea, I guess. But yeah. it's it's just that Lovecraft was such a fierce rationalist. Yeah. Um, and now I know Kenneth Grant gets around that by saying oh, he didn't know <laughs> that he was channeling these things that are real. Now you you kind of I think it's more complex than that. Um, the thing is, Lovecraft came up with all of these things purely out of his own imagination. Yeah. that they had got enormous resonance because Lovecraft was almost an unbearably sensitive barometer of uh, what I suppose you might call American dread. Yeah. Uh, he was frightened about everything. 
He was awkward with women. He was frightened of immigrants yeah. uh, or despised them, if there's any difference. But also, other than these average middle-class fears of his time, Lovecraft was reading science magazines. And he understood the revolution that was going on in science, how Einstein had practically undone the whole of humanity's conception of where it stood in the universe and had rewritten a lot of the basic rules of the universe. Hmm. Uh, and I think Lovecraft was initially horrified by Einstein, but then came to um, to absorb his theories and probably to understand them. Uh, it seems that he has understood and he's taken them on board. So what Lovecraft's fiction was reflecting was that we existed in a hostile random universe. Uh, well, not so much hostile as completely oblivious. Yeah. A universe so vast that we were reduced to the, the tiniest, insig most insignificant speck in a remote corner of this infinite blackness. And Lovecraft was looking at that, looking at a world without God. He was a fierce atheist. He was looking at a world that had occurred by random accident, um, this infinite universe, and the feeling that that gave him as a human being um, the existential horror, if you like, hmm. of that sensation, it was that that he personified in his various cosmic extraterrestrial creatures, his gods. Hmm. I mean, most of them, a lot of them are referred to as mindless, uh, which is another way of saying, yet yeah, random, without intention. Yeah, they're just there. These random forces. Um, yeah, I think that Lovecraft was trying to chart um, the horrors of the rational universe, and actually, I think a lot of the the theories that I've read. Um, I mean, some of the occultists that have become interested in Lovecraft seem to be expecting the great old ones or something very much like them to manifest upon earth very very shortly yeah um in any material sense that is not going to happen um i think i can be fairly confident about that <laughs> you know it's yeah. i think it also diminishes what lovecraft himself was doing i think he's an incredibly important writer hmm but it's nothing to do with him as a conduit for magical forces. I think that the magic of Lovecraft was that he somehow managed to be a willful antiquarian who was also a closeted modernist, that he railed against people like Joyce and Gertrude Stein and T.S. Eliot. He wrote a brilliant parody of The Wasteland called Waste Paper, which is actually a good poem and quite funny um, in its kind of parody of what Lovecraft saw as Eliot's nonsense. Um, but at the same time, Lovecraft was himself a modernist, even if he was closeted. Hmm. 
Uh, you look at some of his stuff. There is, there are. There's an invent. There's invented linguistics. There are first person rushes of delirious narrative. He's using a lot of modernist tricks. Um, he's certainly a lot more modern than his oidal Pope. Yeah. There's a lot of the ideas that are they're purely Lovecraft's own. And towards the end of his career, he was coming up with a fusion of horror and science fiction that was utterly unique. You know, he was he hated he hated a lot of horror contemporary horror stories because they didn't really add up to his idea of a weird story. Yeah. Um he thought they were too human, too provincial. Uh in their imagining of horrors. He also hated a lot of science fiction stories with, you know, the alien races who were, they all spoke English. Um, they were all pretty much the same as humans in their ambitions and what they did and how they acted. He despised that. Hmm. So by combining science fiction and horror in the way that he did in At the Mountains of Madness or The Shadow Out of Time or The Colour Out of Space... Hmm. Uh, he was doing something really new that invigorated both genres. You know, um, yeah. that I think is Lovecraft's importance, uh, and the fact that even today I still think that people could do with looking at H.P. Lovecraft because he's not a dusty, old, dead author. Yeah, I think that his material and his processes, uh, his techniques they are still really valuable really useful uh I'm, i have been reading an awful lot of lovecraft criticism yeah but uh at the same time you start to notice these things that lovecraft does like um his description of cthulhu uh he said while it would be accurate to describe it as some combination of an octopus a dragon and a man it was nevertheless the overall outline that was most disturbing so he tells you yeah it it was kind of like a combination of an octopus a dragon and a man but it wasn't really like that yeah um i can't really tell you what it was like it was something about the overall outline or describing the colour out of space in one, I think, brilliant line. He said, Indeed, it was only a colour by analogy. What is that? I mean, what was it a smell? Was it a texture? Yeah. What? It's sort of... Like synesthesia, yeah. The only thing that actually exists that is that has colour by analogy would be a quark. Um, quarks have colour but it doesn't we, we term that colour it's analogous Yeah. but of course Lovecraft would have known nothing of quarks yeah. uh, not, he did understand the beginnings of quantum physics in poorly uh, well no in, imprecisely that's a real word in poorly isn't a word is it uh, I, but yeah he understood the beginnings of, of quantum physics imprecisely but I don't think he'd have known about uh, quantum particles being said to have colour yeah. you know 
But still, you know, a, a tremendous writer who, despite his obsession with the past, offers us some interesting ways of looking at and dealing with the future. Yeah. And to work collaboratively as well as as he did with people like Clark Ashton Smith and August Derleth. And obviously they came after him, but, but well, they started I'd... to, you know, to use bits of their creations amongst his and that and well it's 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 kind of that's that's in itself a kind of an interesting thing one of the the things that i wrote in my outline for when i was doing providence and some of the related stuff uh that is around it was that there is no cthulhu mythos that does not exist Hmm. lovecraft never used that term yeah uh, originally Durth, yeah. the eager fanboy, yeah. um, suggested that Lovecraft refer to his mythos, which Lovecraft didn't think of it as a mythos, but he suggested it should be called the, the, mythos, the mythos of Hastur. And Lovecraft pointed out, well, actually, Hastur, I didn't really invent Hastur. He comes from Robert Chambers mm. and Ambrose Bierce. Um... So, and anyway, Lovecraft referred to what he did as his Cthulhuism or his Yog Sothothery. And he said, it's basically a bit of fun. And also, if he could get other writers to mention his gods and creepy books, Hmm. and vice versa, if he could mention theirs, then to readers coming across those stories it would add an element of depth Hmm. to the story because the readers would think hang on i read about this god in a story by robert e howard are both of these writers taking from some mythology that i've not heard of yeah can this necronomicon thing really be real of course and so i've got four copies of the necronomicon at home yeah um, all of them complete fabrications. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the Simon one is, is sold like 800,000 copies. It's not... That has been continuously in print since yeah. it was invented as a kind of nasty joke Yeah. by the people at the uh, Magical Child Bookshop in New York, was it? Yeah. Allegedly yeah. so, yeah. Well, um, as from what I understand, they originally came up with They'd got a kind of an occult studies group based around the bookshop. Yeah. And they said, oh, this will be a really good way of sorting them out because if they know anything about magic, they'll realise that you don't do books of magic without the banishing spells. And, of course, they'll notice that we've based a lot of this upon the obviously fictitious works of H.P. Lovecraft Mm. and uh, then put out this book of actual Babylonian... Yeah. Um, magical spells and charms and that book irrespective of whether it has any magical power or not uh, as you will find out I think in Providence 11 um, it has been at the site of at least two real life satanic murders Yeah, um, it's not important what the book is it's what people believe it is yeah what it represents yeah yeah and there's also talk from people in the magical community they are very uncomfortable about the book um 
some apparently some people in relation to the book have had a sense more than one person has had a sense of a vision of a wall with something hammering upon it from the other side um does this mean Cthulhu and or something like him is real? No, but we create these things. Yeah. Uh, where do any of the gods come from originally, other than in a human mind? Mm. Um, we create these things. But as Joel Barocco said uh, about the chaos magicians' uh, hypothesis that um, you could worship or conjure up. Cthulhu or Yogg-Sothoth or Nyarlathotep and Joel Barocco said yeah I suppose you could but why would you uh, which is a good point Yeah, you know um, why try to summon up something that is perceived in entirely negative terms something to which human life is um, completely you know beneath regard that wouldn't sound like the best idea to me. I'd say, if you're going to su- summon up something, summon up something that's friendly and positive and perhaps useful. Hmm. But then that's essentially what's happening now as well with the singularity and AI, I think. Uh, this is a totally different thing, but it just made me think thing. of that. Well, well, I mean, like, the thing is... Sorry to take your track, I don't track, know but... about the singularity. I mean, like, I myself have talked about the... Uh, it was a French economist whose name I can never remember, or I think he was French, who came up with the concept of period information doubling. Yeah. Which is that you start from the first hand axe, say that's, what, 100,000 BC, something mm. like that, and then you take that up to 1 BC, 1 AD, the year dot. And you say, right, how many inventions have we come up with in that time? We're going to call that one period of human information. Then we're going to see how long it takes to double that. And actually it takes about 1,500 years, uh, which is a big difference from the 100,000 years that the first period took. We've doubled it by about the time of the Renaissance. Um, And it keeps getting faster. It becomes geometric. Yeah, well, it's between 1960 and 1970, I believe information doubled. And I, as far as I know, the last time I checked, it was doubling about every 18 months. That was probably like where it intersected with Moore's Law. And this itself was years ago. Hmm. And I know that there was a projected point around 2017 where we would be doubling human information every fraction of a second. That means that every fraction of a second we would be acquiring more human, more information than had existed in the entirety of human history before that point. What kind of civilization or even human being might exist Mm. on the other side of that transition, I cannot imagine. Um, I don't know about... uh, I mean, the idea of a singularity, I don't know. I don't know if that particular graph is is holding up. Um, it might be doing something weird. It might have reached a peak. Um, I don't know. The The thing about AI um, is something that I am much more sceptical about. Uh, the As far as I understand it, um, the Turing test, yeah. 
which originally was the imitation game and originally was Alan Turing um, basically kind of saying, look, if you've got a man and a woman behind these two slits and if a human interrogator could not tell which was the man and which was the woman, Hmm. then what is that saying about identity and you could see why Alan Turing would be driven to ask those questions. Yeah. And, of course, later he extended it to the Turing test. Now, the thing about the Turing test, as I understand it, is it's not... Yes, it is our best way of uh, testing for artificial, for genuine artificial intelligence, for a self-aware yeah. machine, which is what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but I think that what Turing was doing was actually kind of pointing out that yes this is the best way to test for uh, uh, an intelligent aware machine and this way is completely useless Uh, we cannot even prove that another human being is sentient and aware in the same way that we are yeah we can't um so what turing was saying was Basically, yeah, this is the, as, as good as it gets. Somebody standing behind two slits and making a guess, that is the Turing test. They, yeah. This is as good as it gets. Yeah. And I was, uh, again, reading in this week's New Scientist, which is, uh, yeah, it was quite a good issue. But they were talking about um, the AI winter, uh, which they fear will be coming soon, hmm. as predictions about AI um, completely outstrip the capabilities we do not have we yeah we've got things like deep mind which did pretty well on that game of go yeah. a couple of months ago that is a massive step forward uh, it's a massive step forward from the chess playing computers hmm. and there was the Watson that won on jeopardy the thing is you don't have to be aware to do these things you just have to be able to process a lot of information accurately it doesn't know that it's doing it Hmm. Um, and I suspect that the idea that consciousness emerges from complexity yeah it's an interesting idea we have no proof of it I believe British Telecom they got about 10 years ago they got really worried by the idea of emergent consciousness from complexity, they thought, oh, what if the internet suddenly gains consciousness? Mm. So they went and they spent millions testing to see if the internet had become conscious until they realised, actually, no, we, we can't even tell that other human beings are <laughs> conscious. So, yeah. Uh, so they abandoned it. Yeah. It's... Um, I am... I'm not sure about that. I don't think that it's necessary that complexity alone is enough to create consciousness. Mm. Uh, I don't know where consciousness comes from. I'm not saying it comes from somewhere mystical. I'm saying I don't know where it comes from. Mm. Um, So given that, the chances of ever duplicating it, uh, we'd have to be very, very lucky, and we're not doing it. What we do have is immensely useful things like, say, niche AIs. 
uh, there's a niche AI that is currently running the Hong Kong traffic system because it knows where all the work gangs are, where all the faults have been reported. It knows how distant... It can sort everything out brilliantly and efficiently. Yeah. And uh, I think that offers a lot of possibilities because presumably the Hong Kong traffic system, that sounds like quite a complicated thing. <laughs> um, as does, say, government. Um, if we only need an administration, why not put in a couple of niche AIs to handle everything? Because actually they're not going to be fiddling their expenses, are they? Mm. They're not going to be following their own bonkers right-wing agendas. Uh, Skynet aside, I don't think we have much to worry about yeah. from machines. Mm. They just do what we tell them to do. Yeah. You know? But uh, I think that... Sorry, I threw a real spanner in the works then. No, well, no, that. but it's like, I think that ultimately artificial intelligence, the idea of artificial intelligence might be the most useful thing about it hmm. because by contemplating that idea, we are actually thinking about our own intelligence. Yeah. We're thinking about, by thinking about a non-human intelligence, that forces us to consider what human intelligence is and what human consciousness is. Uh, like a lot of these things, the actual, the thing itself um, is not half as useful as the idea of the thing. Yeah. Look at holograms, for example. I mean, we were told back in the 70s that holograms were going to change everything, that it was all going to be like Princess Leia. In, in that little bit in Star Wars, you know. Mm. Um, what holograms tended to be used for in actuality was, I remember that they were giveaways in Shreddies, uh, which was my breakfast cereal of choice at the time. Yeah. Um, because actually, you know, once you've seen them, yeah, yeah, it looks nice. It's a nice 3D shape. It's an interesting principle. But it's the principle that's the most interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, like the the it gives birth to ideas like the one we were discussing earlier. Yeah, is the entire of the universe some kind of hologram? Uh, it also brings up interesting metaphors and analogies, like for example, the idea that if you have a hologram of a rose and you smash it, a blurred image of the whole rose will appear in every fragment. Um. I've heard that that is true. Yeah. Uh, that says something about the potential structure of the universe that is quite comforting. It's suggesting that in all of us, the image of the... In, in everything, the entirety of the universe is somehow represented. Yeah. Like the self-similarity in fractals. You know? Every where man you, and woman is a star. Yes. It would... That is quite a, a, a nice positive doctrine. Yeah. Um, and I suspect that that kind of doctrine will ultimately be more useful than the giveaways in the Shreddy's package. <laughs> you know, just my opinion. <laughs> All right, brilliant. We've got. Uh, let me check. I don't want to keep you. That yeah, what's the time now? That's two hours. Really? Is it four o'clock now? Mm. Yeah. We've pro probably one more question. Uh, if that worked for you. Uh, it, do you know what we can wrap it up now if 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 that's good with you are you sure yeah of course thank you so much 
Well, I'm glad if you've covered everything you wanted to ask. Well, uh, no, I, to be honest with you, I could sit and listen to you talk f- for fucking days, if I'm honest with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I find it fascinating and, um, and enlightening. But, um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, well, obviously, I have a lot of time <laughs> to sit around thinking about this stuff. So, sort of... Um, I think more people should do that. Well, you know, they might come to some interesting conclusions. Most definitely. It's... Uh, I suppose I've got an arts lab meeting tonight. I've started up an arts lab. Okay. Um, it was in what last November we had a, a counterculture, a day of counterculture yeah. up at the. Well, prior to that, our local, he's a local politician and he's he was an MP at one point, a Labour MP. He's the only uh, local politician that I've really got any time for. And he was the only Labour MP or the only MP ever to have an intercity firm tattoo, <laughs> uh, which I think is brilliant. Yeah. And so, but he was talking to some of the young people up at the college who wanted to engage with politics but didn't really have, they didn't like any of the options that they could see. Hmm. So they'd heard that I'll go on about anarchy at the drop of a hat and alternative politics. So they got me up to talk to them, and there was only about what less than a dozen of them there but we had a great talk in which about 10 minutes in uh it became glaringly apparent that they hadn't got the first clue what i was talking about uh because i was using familiar references to me as as part of a counterculture yeah Uh, and then i was having to explain them to them while they looked because they'd never known a counterculture yeah and uh, I was thinking about um, the hypothesis in John Higgs' book, John Higgs' brilliant book, uh, The KLF, Chaos, Magic, and the Band That Burned a Million Quid. Yeah. Uh, where he is saying that, yeah, we used to have a counterculture since the end of the Second World War. We'd reliably have a new counterculture every two or three years, um, as regular as buses. You know, and this more or less continued till the end of Rave, which was roughly in 1990. Yeah. When the KLF left their dead sheep on the steps of the uh, the Brit Awards, <laughs> and Bill Drummond sprayed the audience with machine gun fire blanks, but yeah. uh, and they announced that the KLF had left the music industry, and we all. Okay, you can more or less date the end of Rave from that colourful point. Yeah. Um, and then we waited for five years and we got Britpop. We got something that wasn't a counterculture, something that was imposed from the top down, yeah. something which was a composite of the past 30, 40 years of English guitar band music. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, guaranteed to appeal to people like me which is why I hated it so much, because it was so transparently aimed at people of my generation. Whereas I thought, actually, younger people should have music and counterculture of their own. So we had this big thing up at the college. Uh, It was brilliant. We had Robin Ince there, Grace Petrie, um, Francesca Martinez, John Higgs, uh, Scroobius Pip, uh, me and Melinda. And... um, Oh, a, a fantastic array of people. And we talked about counterculture, and at the end of it, somebody put up their hand in the first row when I said, any questions? And they said, 
yeah, is there any way that I can stay here and not go <laughs> home to a life where I feel that nobody ever has these opinions but me? And I said, yeah, that's a really good question. If, perhaps if everybody who wants to take this forward in some ambiguous way gives their details to the young gentleman standing over there, and we'll see what happens. And what happened was we, about 16 of us got together um, in December last year and spent the first meeting trying to decide where we would have the second meeting and also what we were going to call ourselves. Uh, I'd suggested we could call ourselves an arts lab, although I understand if you younger people, perhaps that's got too much 1960s baggage. Hmm. So let's hear your suggestions. And yeah, that was the rest of the meeting taken up with everybody's suggestions. So the second meeting, which was in <laughs> January, um, it was freezing cold and only about five people turned up. And I said, well, this is a bit disappointing in terms of turnout. But on the other hand, um, we this does enable us to stage a coup um, so I'm going to suggest that in in lieu of any better ideas that we call ourselves Northampton Arts Lab because that's what David Bowie would have wanted and uh, one of the guys there said are you actually going to play that card and I said yes I am so yeah now we're Northampton Arts Lab we brought out our first magazine about a month ago uh, which looks gorgeous best arts lab magazine ever Yeah, we've got about I think it was 60 or 70 members. We did our first gig on the 24th of June. Uh, we, we'd forgotten that this was the day after the referendum. Uh, and yet it turned out to be eerily appropriate. Hmm. It sort of... Um, I in the, I ended the evening. That whole evening was about... It was called Artmageddon. And it was about how, yeah, when the apocalypse turned up eventually, it wasn't the one we were expecting. But all of the art and culture just died. Hmm. You know, masterpieces were slithering down off the canvas and crawling across gallery floors towards the daylight like gorgeous dying jellyfish. And uh, all the songs and pieces of music and perfect pop songs, they all kind of flew away in this incredible aviary jailbreak. And, and we sort of have... We present the Arts Lab gig that follows this introduction as, yeah the traumatised survivors kind of got together in small groups and tried to articulate what it was that they'd lost. They tried to recreate this thing called art that they'd heard about but yeah. only imperfectly understood. And then at the end of the evening, um, based upon the principle that in a political vacuum you often get some political monster arising to take advantage of it. Hmm. And I thought, well, in a cultural background vacuum what if you get some kind of cultural monster and I thought yeah and it would probably be a mandrill um, I, I thought yeah I, if I was to dress up as a mandrill a very well dressed mandrill but a mandrill nonetheless some kind of fascist mandrill um, and then deliver my address at the end of the evening um, I can probably get a kind of a good Nuremberg rally vibe going so this was how we celebrated uh, the appalling fact that we'd somehow voted ourselves out of Europe <laughs> with me dressed as a mandrill <laughs> and uh, leading this torchlight rally almost. Um, but a lot of the people who saw it, I think I think it, it, it kind of made them feel better. Yeah. I think that they, they were smiling, they were thinking, if Alan Moore's prepared to dress up 
as a totalitarian mandrel, then <laughs> I think everything's going to be all right. You know, I, I think I lent them reassurance. Amazing. So uh, no, Thanks. but that's been that's been great, Dan. Thanks so much for that. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode 13 with Alan Moore. Thank you to Alan. He was uh, amazing. Also, thank you to Mark and Jay who run the Lodge Studios in Northampton. Alan's comic Providence is on episode 10. You should pick that up. There's actually um, a book compiling, I think, the first five, and then I guess there'll be more again. It's amazing. It's, It's an incredible read. And his forthcoming novel, Jerusalem, is out in September, which is very soon. I think you can pre-order that online now. Remember to subscribe on iTunes, by the way, if you leave me a review and a rating. um, That would be wonderful because it makes a difference. The next episode is with Wes Borland of Queen Kwong Limp Biscuit. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Blacklight burns and more. Thanks again. I'm out. Peace.